0: It is the last Q&A Sunday of the year. We thought it was appropriate and still think it's appropriate to have something like this because as the people of God, uh, we, are not, uh, we, are, we are emotional, spiritual, and we are also intellectual creatures. And so uh, asking and answering important questions has been uh, a good and healthy exercise for us as the covenant community, the body of Christ. So... We've had uh, less questions submitted this time, but some of those questions require some extensive explanation, so we really only have three questions today that we're going to cover that will fill our time. And uh, let me pray first before we get into our first question. Father, thank you for the grace that you have poured out on us, the initiating divine love that pursues us and that names us and claims us as your own before we are even able to respond. Father, we pray now that you would open our hearts and minds that we might have understanding, and that through some of these questions answered, that we would feel equipped to engage unbelievers or our neighbors, our friends, our family, for the sake of the gospel, that that others might know the love that you have poured out through your Son and on the cross, the gospel of Christ. We thank you now. Guide us through this time with the illumination of the Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the first question out the gate is one about God's omnipotence. This question is one iteration of what God can't Uh, or can do relating to his omnipotence or, to a lesser extent, his freedom? Is God free to do X, Y, or Z, or can God do X, Y, or Z? So the question is, can God sin, and if not, how then is he all-powerful? We might say, is God free to sin? If God is not free to sin, then how can he be all-powerful? It's a good question. Revelation 19 and 6 says that God is almighty. There are other places that say it, but the Greek word for almighty is all-powerful, and it's where we get the word Omnipotent. So if we we're to define the word omnipotence, part of the word omni means all, and potent means powerful. So the idea is that God is all-powerful. Scripture says that. It's not some reflection of philosophers centuries later. It comes from the Bible itself. The Bible declares that God has all power and God can do all things so if we ask the question is there anything that God's power cannot accomplish the the answer is if power can accomplish it then no there is nothing God's power cannot accomplish philosopher William Lane Craig says an omnipotent being is a being that is capable of doing anything that is logically possible for someone to do in that situation. An omnipotent being is a being that is capable of doing anything that is logically possible. You're already feeling some tension here. Hopefully. Logically possible in any given situation. So, God can't do something like make a married bachelor Or a round square. And the reason is because those aren't really things. It's not an infringement on his omnipotence because those are just absurd combinations of words. Does that make sense? Say, can God make a square circle? There's no such thing as a square circle. It's absurd, right? Or a married bachelor. There's no such thing as a married bachelor. Those are just silly combinations of words. God's ability then to perform things is limited only by logic God cannot perform logical absurdities and so questions like questions that seem clever on the surface like can God beat himself in an arm wrestling match presumes that God is not one right because if God beat himself in an arm wrestling match he'd be both the winner and the loser at the same time and it doesn't make sense Or can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? The idea is that if he has the power to make a rock like that, then that power also has the power to lift it. May seem clever on the surface, but those are just silly word games. And they fail to employ, and this is key, just simple logic. So when we're asking questions about God's power, it's important that we use the faculties of logic that God has given us. So the question, can God sin... Or is God free to sin? The answer would also be no. The answer would be no. Because sinning would maybe not be a logical contradiction, but it would be logically incompatible with God's character as an absolutely and essentially holy and perfect being. And so it may not be logically Impossible or a logical contradiction, but the idea of God sinning would be logically incompatible with the very nature of God as a perfectly holy being. The Bible says God can't lie. The Bible says in James 1 that God cannot be tempted by evil. Well, that's where sinning comes from. Sin is the result of temptation. Why can't God lie or be tempted by evil? Because of his absolute essential holiness, but not because something outside of himself limits his power or infringes on his omnipotence. So the answer to this question is God can do all things that can be done except logical absurdities or logical impossibilities. And sinning is a logically impossibility for a perfectly holy being. So, I hope that helps you when you think about whether God is able to sin and how that squares with his omnipotence, power and freedom and one day you if you haven't already you may run into a question like that. And the next question takes it up a bit a notch and it's more less of a less of an apologetic question and more of a biblical question. And it says what is the difference between the way the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament and the New? Is there a difference? You don't have to speak up, but just by a show of hands, has anybody wondered this question before? Yeah, what is the primary difference between the way that the Holy Spirit, which we believe, according to our theology, is the third member of the Trinity? Some people call it the the shy or the silent member of the Godhead. What is the difference between the way the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament and the New Testament? I'll try to make this not boring. Some of you are riveted, and some of you might be falling backward in your chair. (laughs) Well, there's continuity and discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In other words, there are things that absolutely do not change about God, the way God works. We say God is immutable and unchangeable through all time, and that's true, but sometimes God moves or works differently based on different passages of Scripture, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, the Old Testament, the New Testament. And so there is continuity and discontinuity with the way the Holy Spirit operates. So after creation, the Holy Spirit shows up on the scene at creation, excuse me, at creation, the Holy Spirit shows up on the scene and hovers and moves over the chaotic waters and speaks order into the world. And after creation, the Holy Spirit is seen giving special empowerment to people for specific tasks. First example, this would be Joseph. Remember in Genesis 41, Joseph is in prison. Pharaoh is having dreams that no one can interpret. And Joseph is called upon to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And it says in Genesis 41 that Joseph was able to interpret those dreams because the Spirit of God was upon him. The Spirit enabled Joseph to interpret dreams. The Spirit, in the Old Testament, also enabled a group of people called the prophets. And the prophets were a group of people who were empowered, so empowered by the Holy Spirit, that they were able to see and understand things the way God does. So the Holy Spirit came upon a select group of people in the Old Testament, the prophets and equip them for a spe- the special task of being able to see things. They had vision, the way God sees things, and they were able to speak in a way that reflected the mind and heart of God. And what does the Spirit help them see? Well, the Spirit helps them see that while um, God created a really good world, human beings are giving into evil, which is unleashed a new kind of chaos back into the world. Remember Genesis? Genesis 1 the spirit moves brings order to the chaos well the prophets now empowered by the spirit are seeing that people are giving into temptation and evil and by sinning are reintroducing a new kind of chaos back into the world a new kind of disorder called sin and the prophets also under the spirit's power tell of a time they they foretell of a future time when the holy spirit will come and perform a kind of new creation and equip and empower not just a few people, but a whole new race of people. Now we're talking about the contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament moves upon just a select few for a specific purpose, and some of those people who are equipped by the Spirit are looking forward to a time when a whole new race of people will be equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this starts with Jesus. You remember Jesus at his baptism in the Jordan River. The Holy Spirit descends upon him in the shape of a bird. Right? It says in the form of a dove. And he is empowered or filled with the Holy Spirit. And towards the end of his ministry, before he ascends, after his resurrection, he breathes on the disciples... And says, Receive the Holy Spirit. And God empowers Jesus in his message, and it was the Spirit that raised him from the dead and breathed life back into him. And soon after that, on the day of Pentecost, it was poured out on all his followers. In Acts chapter 2, where 3,000 souls were saved and filled or equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit in a special way to live as God's new creations and share the good news and learn God's ways. And so the primary difference between the way the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament and the New Testament is this. There's the answer. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit empowered a select few... But it now equips and gives special empowerment to all people who have faith in Christ. The New Testament terminology is called being filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is the primary difference. And this is the blessing of the gospel, that the Holy Spirit is poured out on all of those who have faith in Christ. You may have wondered how the Holy Spirit is at work in your life or not at work in your life. It is not wrong for us to pray for a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit, a fresh equipping. And it's not that the Holy Spirit leaves us, but it's the idea from Scripture that we are filled again and again with God's power through the Spirit. And in Scripture, and especially in the New Testament, where sometimes it'll say the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, or the Holy Spirit, and it's all talking about the same thing. It's God's Spirit. And the fact that the New Testament can mix and match those names means that it's the same Spirit. The Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit are all the same. Romans says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they are none of his. So this is not a matter of some Christians having the Spirit, and then some not having the Spirit because they have not received some type of second blessing or something like that. You cannot have faith without the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot even profess faith in Christ or repent of your sins without the enabling power of the Spirit. So there aren't two types of Christians, Christians who have the Spirit, Christians who don't. There are only Christians, and a person is a Christian because they've been filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to have faith because it's the Spirit's work. Now, this second question leads into our third question, which is, what is new about the new covenant? What is new about the new covenant? Um, In the old covenant, the covenant made with Moses at Mount Sinai Where the Ten Commandments were written on stone tablets by God himself, what we often refer to as the Law of Moses, God's people were to be a special light among the nations as their love for God and neighbor was to be on display as they lived according to God's laws and did what was right and just. So before I can get at what is new about the New Covenant... I first have to explain what the Old Covenant is. Now, in the Bible, there are many covenants. Uh, But the word New Covenant is specifically in contrast to the Old Covenant, the covenant at Sinai. And down the road, probably in 2019, we'll have a series on the biblical covenants. Time does not permit me right now to go into all the covenants. But the old covenant, which is contrasted against what the new covenant is and is what I'm trying to explain a little bit. So God wrote on the tablets of stone at Sinai, giving Moses the law. First it started with the Ten Commandments and every time the Israelites disobeyed, God gave more laws to address their particular disobedient behavior patterns. And The Israelites were meant to embody God's law, the Old Covenant, the Sinai Covenant, to the whole world because God wanted to bless the whole world through Israel. And as Israel lived out God's rules and laws, the rest of the nations were to say, look at how great these laws and their God must be. We want to be like them. That was the intention of the Old Covenant. But Israel broke the covenant. They worshipped other gods, they allowed horrible injustice, and they suffered devastating consequences, and they lose their land and are forced into exile. You don't have to read the Old Testament long before you see that Israel gets in trouble with God really quick, they start worshipping other gods, they break the covenant, and God allows other nations to come in and destroy them and judge them and drive them into exile because they're breaking the covenant. And there were stipulations in that covenant for punishment and blessings. But during the exile, Israel's prophets, who, as I said a minute ago, were empowered by the Spirit, spoke of a day when God would restore the covenant, a day when God would make a new covenant. We're getting at what's new about the new covenant. The prophet Jeremiah said, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them I will write it on their hearts I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forever excuse me I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more So the law that was once written on tablets of stone is now somehow going to be written on the heart. And they won't have to try hard to keep God's rules. It will flow out from them because it's on their heart. The prophet Ezekiel said, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Now that's what the new covenant is. It's a covenant where people empowered by the Spirit are enabled to keep God's law this time because they have a new heart. Now some of you are thinking, yeah, but I still break God's rules. That's true, but if you have authentic faith in Christ, something has happened in your heart where you want to keep those rules. And more than not, I mean we we we're we are really tough on ourselves, but if we were to kind of have a comparison with the ancient Israelites, who were not under such power of the Spirit, we would be shocked at how well we are able to live out God's commands because our heart was cha- is changed. One of the main things about following Christ and the privileges of the new covenant is that the Spirit has done something with our heart. That is not true in the Old Covenant. The Spirit has given us special empowerment that our hearts are oriented in such a way that when we break God's laws, it doesn't feel right. There's conviction. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing that we experience that conviction, that our hearts feel that sense of conviction that we violated God's law. It's actually a really good thing. It's actually a really good thing when we feel that sense of breach with God when we break God's commandments. And so in the New Covenant, people are enabled by the Spirit to keep God's law because we have a new heart, and the rebellion against God and God's ways are taken away. And this is a really good passage. In 2 Corinthians, Paul specifically focuses in on not just what the new covenant is, but what's new about the new covenant. Okay, listen. Paul says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God who has made us ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Here's the Spirit again. The power of the Spirit. Something unique is happening in the Spirit, through the Spirit, by the Spirit. He says, For the letter kills, but the Spirit Gives life. The letter kills, but the Spirit is life-giving. All of the rules with all of their punishments for violating was meant death, but the Spirit is life-giving. The Spirit of God, the same Spirit that breathed life into the creation at the primordial waters, is breathing life into each one of us. Now, if the ministry of death, the old covenant, Paul says, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, in other words, that the law was not to meant, that, that old covenant was not meant to last forever, will not the ministry of the Spirit, here's this word Spirit again, the new covenant, have even more Glory. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the old covenant, the ministry of righteousness, the new covenant, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, this is Paul still talking now, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the surpassing glory of the new covenant. For if what was being brought to an end, the old covenant, came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. That's a big statement that might seem convoluted and confusing, but we have a slide that basically does a comparison. The old covenant was of the letter. The new covenant is of the spirit. The old covenant had a ministry of death, but the new covenant gives life. The Old Covenant was chiseled on stone tablets, but the New Covenant is written on human hearts. The Old Covenant came in glory, but the New Covenant came in greater glory. The Old Covenant ministry was a ministry of condemnation. The New Covenant is a ministry of justification. The Old Covenant and its glory has now been set aside, but the New Covenant is permanent. What made the Old Covenant weak was its sacrifices were insufficient and its mediators, first Moses, then all the priests, died. But the New Covenant is permanent with far surpassing glory Because the death of Jesus Christ is sufficient for all time. Because it is a perfect, once-for-all offering and sacrifice of Jesus himself who lives forever. And Jesus, as that high priest, is continually offering the blood of that perfect sacrifice before the throne of God for all time. Not like the old priest's who were sinful and whose life came to an end and those old sacrifices had to be renewed every single time, this once-for-all sacrifice by this perfectly, perfect and holy sacrificial offering offered by an eternal high priest is why the new covenant is new. It's why the new covenant is better. And everything about the old covenant pointed forward to this. You say, what kind of time would you like to be living in? Someone The other day I heard them ask the question, where in history you know, would you want to live? You would not want to be living during the old covenant. As exciting as it sounds, I assure you we're living at a better time. This is a better covenant. This new covenant, where the Holy Spirit's been poured out, which is life-giving, where we've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Michael Gorman says, and this is really the answer. What is new about the new covenant? Michael Gorman says, it would be a covenant in which the laws of God would be internalized by the presence of the Spirit and would therefore actually be observed. The Spirit's inward work make God's character our own. I think there's another slide there. There may the last slide, the Spirit's inward work make God's character our own to the point that we think God's thoughts after him and we're transformed into the likeness of the perfect law keeper, Jesus Christ. That's what's happening in us. That's what's happening in you every single day as you live out your faith empowered by the Spirit through prayer is more and more we're being conformed to the likeness and image of the perfect law keeper, Jesus Christ. And the beauty in that is that when we fall short, even with a renewed heart empowered by the Spirit, when we fall short of keeping God's rules and laws, guess what? There is one who has perfectly kept the law for us Jesus Christ. I don't know if this morning you're finding yourself maybe condemned by your shortcomings. Listen, uh, conviction is not a bad thing. But part of that our conviction over falling short of God's rules and God's glory and God's law is by faith recognizing that we have an advocate with the Father, someone who stands before the Father on our behalf, and that's Jesus. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus, Today, you can. If you haven't placed your faith and your trust in him as the one who perfectly obeyed God on your behalf, you can come to Jesus. And you can lay down all of your performance-driven guilt at the foot of the cross. And recognize that our salvation ultimately is not founded on law-keeping or being good in God's sight, but our salvation is grounded upon the trust that we have that the one who went to the cross perfectly obeyed God. He stands in our place as the perfectly obedient one. He stands in our place as the atonement for sins, a sacrifice that appeased the divine wrath of God, and lives forever, interceding on our behalf. That's why we're saved. That's what makes us saved. That's That's the confidence we have that we'll be with God forever when the judgment comes is we're pointing to Jesus Christ, trusting in what he's done. Maybe this morning you've never been able to say or you've never said, I'm trusting in Christ for my salvation. You should be able to say that. When you come to faith in Christ and are born again, you are able to say by faith, I trust in Christ for salvation. When someone asks, why would God let you go to heaven when you die? You haven't been all that great of a person. I'm trusting in Christ for salvation. I'm trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. I'm not trusting in myself. I can't trust in myself. I fall short of God's glory too much. I have too many shortcomings, too many character flaws. But the confidence that we have, the assurance that we have that we're saved and loved by God is that Jesus did it for us. Jesus lived that perfect life of obedience to God's holy law. And by faith, that obedience and that righteousness is imputed to us that when God sees us, he sees us as righteous. Maybe you've never heard that this morning. Maybe you've never heard that before. But that's the confidence we have that we're saved. If, if you've ever responded to somebody, why will God send you to heaven? You said, well, you know, I, I try to do good, and I, I, I try to be a good person. That, that is not the biblical answer. The biblical answer is that Jesus has done it. Jesus has paid it all, and it's all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain that he washed white as snow. Let's pray. Father, thank you now um, that our hearts are curious and we long to be able to understand with the mind of God deep questions, perplexing questions. We long and desire, O God, to be able to defend our faith and we pray that by the power and illumination of the Holy Spirit that you would help us not only to search the Scriptures for in them we think we have eternal life, but also to have confidence that even the questions we cannot answer, Lord, you are still powerful enough to move in the hearts of unbelievers. And so our feeble attempts at evangelism and sharing our faith are not wasted because it is ultimately the power of the Holy Spirit, which we've just heard about, that transforms hard hearts through the hearing and the preaching of the gospel. Even an elementary presentation of the gospel of Christ. And Father, you redeemed us. Not all of us were born into believing homes and grew up in the faith. Some of us were pagans, unbelievers, idolaters, and we've all been guilty. But Lord, we thank you now that because of Jesus and his sacrifice, that we are participants in the new and better covenant, a covenant of life a covenant of justification, a permanent covenant. We thank you now in Christ's name, amen.